This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number four of the series of studies in the book of Nehemiah. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. So those of you who are listening, if you care to switch off for a little while, we shall be reading together Second Epistle of Peter, chapters 1 and 2. It's possible that we felt as we read those dreadful passages that it wasn't very edifying for any of us. <clears throat> but you see, if you're always picking out the comforting passages of Scripture and never allowing this rough edge sometimes to come up against your heart, mind and conscience, you'll be a little bit unbalanced. For you've only got to think about the days in which you live to realise that as Peter said in the next chapter, the second epistle I've written unto you because the day is coming when there shall be mockers, when they should be denying, and he's urging them to stand fast to the hold fast to the truth, and not be asleep, but be very, very conscious that there'll still be the Sanballats and the Tobias and the Geshens and all the others that we've seen in Nehemiah, out to do the self-same thing, to cause the work of God to cease. When you go back to the thought of Nehemiah, what was happening was he was building a wall, and Ezra came along afterwards and built a temple, now in the epistle to the Ephesians, we are told that we are a part of a temple that God is building, and in Ephesians 4, he gives us the unity of the Spirit, which is a wall around it to protect its doctrines. So you see, without a great stretch of imagination, we can still transplant Nehemiah into the present period and our own selves, and say just as Nehemiah had these opponents, these who mocked at him, those who sought to lead him astray into other departments, so we shall have to be on our guard all the time. And we, if we are keeping the unity of the Spirit, are building a wall, and the temple is the picture of the church of the one body, which is the truth, the sacred truth, that we have been called upon to maintain. <clears throat> now when we go back to the book of Nehemiah, don't go for a minute, we are going to see uh, what reaction uh, took place in Nehemiah's mind and works with regard to this opposition that was growing so strongly. Uh, but before we do that, let's continue in the New Testament with regard to a few more passages. What about this question of fighting? Because you see, uh, the uh, builders, when we come to Nehemiah, and uh, they were divided, the, the people were divided into two now. Some were put on guard with swords and spears. <coughs> Others went on with the work with trowel. You know, the speaking with sword and trowel. Well now, of course, we may bring out all sorts of scriptures and apparently, in one measure, put them against each other. You turn to somebody your other cheek. Well, that doesn't sound very much like a military action. The scripture says, you are to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The scripture says, fight the good fight of faith. Paul again says, <clears throat> I have fought a good fight. But he adds, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. So you see, the fight is the fight of faith. Uh, just exactly how far the word fight is a true translation uh, may be a matter of consideration. The word used is not usually a military word at all. It's the agonistic word, 
uh, the words it gives us, our English word agony, and has to do with the contests rather in the Greek sports than a military expedition. Nevertheless, the emphasis is that we are not merely to pray, that we are to watch, and we are not merely to uh, give the other cheek, but we've got to resolutely stand fast and hold fast the faithful word against all comers. It's not so much going out into a military campaign, but let me quote Ephesians chapter 6. There's the whole armour of God given, and then when it's all portrayed, that you may be able to stand and withstand in the evil day. See, stand and withstand. You're on guard all the time. Nehemiah wasn't instructed to go out and try to capture the city of Samaria. He was told to safeguard the building of the wall <coughs> and the temple that was coming. And that is, I think, a lesson that we do well to remember. Uh, while we do not go out and raid the other people, we will not allow them to remove one stone from the wall that God has given to us. Uh, coming back to the figure of the unity of the Spirit, we have a sevenfold unity to keep. And we are not allowed, by the grace of God, to say, well, one of them is a bit controversial, perhaps we'll don't say anything about that. That's letting the enemy in. So we've got now this spirit that we want to seek by the grace of God. That while we do not go out and interfere with these other people, we do stand resolutely for the truth that God has entrusted, and there shall be no compromise, there shall be no letting down, there shall be standing vigilantly, until at last you remember it says, and the wall was built and met at both ends. And they could put the gates up and the bolts and the locks and so on. <coughs> well, there are many other passages that come to your mind. I've got a note here that when the armour of God is given in the epistle to the Ephesians, it wasn't that we should have a pageant and walk about dressed up in armour. There's a sword of the Spirit and you see how our Saviour used it. When he was tempted to the devil three times, as these tempters came to Nehemiah, he used the sword of the Spirit to repel that temptation, just saying, it is written. And the second time, it is written again. And the third time, it is written again. So that is the way in which, in some measure, we are to use this lesson of the Old Testament and its practice. If you will now... Oh, there's one passage that I think we perhaps ought to include, and that is... 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4. He says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the putting down of strongholds. So he was using the figure of the uh, day in which he lived, but he says they're not carnal. So with that in mind, we turn to Ephesians, which I've only partly quoted, to notice what he says there with regard to the ones with whom we are in conflict. With whom do we fight? Or with whom is this contest uh, against? Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. For flesh and blood is the, old, is the New Testament way of speaking of mankind. We have no conflict with mankind. They may have a conflict with us, uh, but we do not seek it with them. But we do have a spiritual foe, and our blessings are all spiritual blessings. 
They are destined to be enjoyed in heavenly places. And where our inheritance is, there we will find our foes, as we shall notice in a minute in the Old Testament. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. So we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we do have spiritual foes. And those principalities and powers are said to be beneath the feet of the Church of the One Body, beneath the feet of the Ascended Christ. And they are the ones that are our particular adversaries. And then again, if you will turn to the epistle of Jude, which immediately uh, follows the epistles of John, you will find that he's traversing very much the same uh, as the second of Peter. But he puts together two statements which I think we can include as we are trying to get some little idea of Nehemiah chapter 4. He says in verse 3 of Jude, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it doesn't mean common in a modern sense, it means a salvation that belongs to all God's people. It was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So we are urged to contend, but we are warned not to be contentious. I think we can see the difference, can't we? We earnestly contend. We stand against all comers with regard to the faith which has been entrusted to us. That is the element of being armed in the days of Nehemiah. Now we turn to the other end of Jude and we see, he says there, verse 20, But ye beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. So there is fighting and building. There is contending for the faith, there is building up in the faith. And the two go together in Nehemiah, the sword and the trowel. So that in the New Testament, as well as in the Old, we have very much the same antagonism and very much the same sort of exhortation. And uh, looking again at Jude, it says in verse 4, For there are certain men crept in unawares. Crept in unawares. And if you will turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 6, you'll see the word is used in the epistle that belongs to our own selves. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. For this sort are they which creep into houses. Creep into houses. They creep in unawares. Now it's rather strange to realise that this word means to dress up. Of course, it does mean to creep in, that's why they dress up. But it really means to dress up. And doesn't that immediately make you think of the um, uh, passage in the book of the Revelation uh, where it says in chapter 13, verse 11, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake like a dragon. See, there's the attempt to disguise the dressing up. And the word is used in the prophet Zechariah of putting on a prophetic dress to deceive. Well then we also have um, one or two references I'd like to turn to before we go back to Nehemiah, bring those with us. In the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20. 
chapter 20. The apostle is saying goodbye to the believers in Ephesus. A sad moment, an end of the ministry has come. He only knows now that in front of him uh, prison and afflictions await him, but he says in verse 24, none of these things move me. Now I count on my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And it's good to know that in 2 Timothy 4, he says, I have finished my course, henceforth a crown. So here's the beginning of the ministry of Paul, the second ministry of Paul on that note, and 2 Timothy 4 is the end of it on the same note. That's encouraging, isn't it? In spite of all the opposition of the world, the flesh and the devil that made the burden of the apostle almost unbearable. But now notice a little bit what he says in verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. A very wonderful statement that needs a good deal of careful handling. But Solomon indeed. But do notice this. He stresses that the equipment of the church to withstand all the deceit and all the aggression is to be well fed with the word of God. That's one thing. For I know this, that after my departure shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, here's the saddest part of all, Paul himself told the Ephesians that of their own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. That's one of the saddest things you can think. That nearly every work that's been commenced by men of God have gradually come to this terrible end. Don't be downhearted about it. God has written it to, to, to warn us and to encourage us, nevertheless, to put our trust in him. But to be watchful. Not to take it too, too for granted that because we have stood for 50 years for this truth and we've got a big set of books and they're being read by many people that we can let down now and it's quite easy. We're all right, you know. That's opening the door to the enemy. You'll take the advantage at once. And so we could go on with these many passages in the New Testament. There shall be mockers in the last time. There was Sanballat and his crew mocking these feeble Jews, as you may remember. So shall we now turn, as I think that is wise we should, otherwise our time will be quite gone with this big introduction, to Nehemiah chapter 4 and see his response to the attacks of these men. In our last study, we were looking at a whole list of names in chapter 3 of those people who turned to and helped in the building of the wall. And uh, we found that instead of this being a dull list of names, it began to live very much as we traced out their various activities. Well, now it goes on to say in chapter 4, but it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we built the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren and the army of, the, of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in the day? Will they re revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? And then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was a very slavish sort of person, he echoed his master's words and said, Even that which they build if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone walls. And you see, there are some folks who can't stand that. Mockery breaks them down. 
Well, you've got to be prepared for it. You've got to be prepared to find some of your best distorted. I don't know whether you know Kipling's uh, if, but there's a bit that appeals to me, I can't quote it, I don't suppose exactly. If you could hear the truth, it, uh, if you could hear the truth, you've given you life for her, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, and then stoop to build again with worn-out tools. That's only Kipling talking about the ordinary man. That's a tester, isn't it? That's what's happening. And so he goes on presently, in verse um, 7, that it came to pass that when Sandalat and Tobar and the Arabians and the Ashmanites and the Ashdodites, I know they're getting a, a bit more around them, they're increasing in their number, heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up, and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth, and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God, and set a watch against them day and night because of them. You notice the two things. We made our prayer unto our God, and they didn't sit back and say, that's all right. We made our prayer, but we set a watch day and night. These two things walk together. The person who is most in prayer, if it's the true thing, will be most on his guard. Our Saviour didn't say to his disciples, pray. He said, watch and pray. Watch and pray. And here Nehemiah, without waiting for the New Testament, is doing that. He was a man of prayer. But he wasn't that man of prayer who went in and shut himself in a room and let the whole thing slide while he was having his quiet hour. He was out there busy. And sometimes those two things do not always go together. And Judah said, oh, here it comes, the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, decayed. There is much rubbish, so that we're not able to build the wall. All the deadening effect of much rubbish. Most of us have lived through a period when we've seen rows of houses reduced to rubble, when you can't see one stick of furniture left but just a heap of rubbish. What do you think of that in doctrinal terms? And then go back to any attempt on the part of any child of God to commence, to re, as it were, revive an interest in some neglected part of the word of God. And you nearly die of faintness because of the much rubbish. You go back in history to 1909, when one poor little solitary person attempted to try to get people to be interested in the glorious truth of the epistle to the Ephesians. Oh, there was plenty of rubbish there to make one disheartened. But by the mercy of God, one or two began to stand by. And we're here today. Oh, may we be by grace, learn the lesson to stand fast and hold fast and continue. But don't despise the idea that rubbish doesn't have an terrible uh, uh, effect upon those who are thus engaged. And then it says our adversary said, they shall not know neither see till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. And it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said unto us ten times, from all places whence you shall return unto us, they will be upon you. Now if anybody can tell me what that means, I shall be very glad. But I don't think it matters. It doesn't matter what they say as long as they put the wind up you. Now here's a statement. You're all wondering what on earth they mean. 
for all places when she shall return out of us, they will be upon you. And they said it ten times over. They knew the value of a value of advertisement. Keep on at it and it will din it into your mind and put you on edge. Therefore set I in the lower places behind the wall and on the higher places. I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears and their bows. So now they are building and they are standing armed. He began to divide them up between the two. And so we borrowed from Jude and the words that have been borrowed from Jude with sword and travel. We are building. That is our great work. If you go to Ephesians 4, the disciples, the apostles of the ascended Christ were for the edifying or building of the church which is likened to a body and the body likened to a temple. And the safeguarding of that truth is the keeping, the unity of the spirit. And we are not engaged in warfare unless the enemy approach too near. And then we have to stand on guard. Stand fast. Hold fast. And quit yourselves like men. Be strong. And then the next thing that we discover is uh, emphasis not only on the arms, uh, but on the warning. It says, um, verse 17, They which builded on the wall, and they that bear burdens with those that laded, every one with one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. Well, they were working at a disadvantage, weren't they? Such a disadvantage, and we have worked at disadvantage, we still do. Because half of our energy is expended in trying to meet and defeat that which is an intrigue or an opposition, or in some measure trying to stop the work, instead of going straight forward in an open field. But still, God knows. And I mean, I'm, I want to feel that we all are conscious that the whole of the Bible in its setting is uh, telling you and me that we are in a battlefield. There's not one of us have ever known peace, except the beginnings of the peace of God that comes through trust in him. But whether the nations are in actual warfare, cold or hot, or whether it should be called peace and safety, there's a war on all the time. A war either by actual invasion or by deception. Uh, the very prosperity may be a part of the very program to destroy. And we want to remember that this is more or less how we should have to do our work. We should have to be building, but have a weapon in our hand at the same time, or it won't be a very good building, friends, will it? You can't build walls and, and handle stones and put cement in the right place and one hand hold a weapon always be looking round to see what's going to come. God knows, doesn't he? I don't suppose if you looked at the wall they built that it could be described that they speak about the masonry of the pyramids in Egypt that you couldn't put a penknife between the slabs of stone. I dare say you could put some penknives between some of these. So don't be downhearted, friends, if some of our work looks a bit roughshod. We've done it with an enemy looking at us and an enemy attempting to deceive us and to destroy the work that we have done. God knows, even if we don't make a margin for one another. And then the next thing, verse 18, For the builders, every one had his sword girded by his side and so built it. And he that sounded a trumpet was by me. Now that could be lifted out, couldn't it? And we always are exposed to that sort of uh, idea that we are blowing our own trumpet. But that isn't what it means, is it? You know what it means. 
the trumpets play a great part in Israel's affairs. There is a feast of trumpets, heralding in the last month of their festival year, and so looking forward to the day when, in the book of the Revelation, the seventh angel shall sound and the kingdoms of this world to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. The sounding of the trumpets. But if you would go into the story, you'll find there's two or three kinds of trumpets. There's a ram's horn trumpet, there's a, a silver trumpet, and the various notes that they play and the number of times they make a blast have a different meaning. That's a sort of a Morse code. One. Now, coming along in the, the car tonight, we heard a buzzing sound and I said, oh, I suppose that's a, a siren saying, leave off, it's time for relaxing work. Now, that shows where my mind goes, thinking of holidays all the time. But somebody else whose name I will not mention, he's such a glutton for work, he said, oh no, that's a circular saw, they're working. You see? But now, you see, what a difference it would make in that business. If I heard the siren go and I marched off home, and it was telling me to get on with my work. So you know what I'm coming to, don't you? Will you turn with this word of the battle of trumpet uh, to the apostles' statements, which we find in... Um, is it 1 Corinthians chapter 14? 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Yes, verse 8, thank you. He says, uh, speaking of course, he's now speaking particularly of the spectacular gift of tongues that they had in the early church. One of those things that would rather be a snare to somebody who wanted to be prominent in the assembly, to stand up and speak with an unknown tongue. You know what the Apostle Paul says. He said, I would rather speak five words with understanding than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. And so he's going along that line a little bit when he says, verse 6, Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall it profit you, except I shall speak to you either by revelation, or by knowledge, or by prophesying, or by doctrine? And even things without life, giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is pipe? or heart. I couldn't help writing out Moffat's translation. It goes over the ground again, but he puts it like this. <clears throat> Inanimate instruments, such as the flute or the harp, may give a sound. But if no intervals occur in the music, how could one make out the air that is being played, either on flute or harp? If you don't know whether it's God save our gracious queen or something else, well, you'd be looking a bit of a fool, won't you? If you don't know in the army, friends, if you were in the army, and you weren't sure whether the bugle said, come to the cookhouse door, boys, or charge the enemy, you, you might make up your mind according to your own feelings, mightn't you? So, here's the sort. If you're going to have a trumpet blown on the wall to warn the enemy, make sure that there's no uncertain sound, isn't it? Well, let's get a little look at that then, shall we? Um, first of all, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 where we can see that, so far as we are concerned, we don't have to have trumpets made of brass or uh, ram's horn. But there is a little suggestion here in 1 Thessalonians that um, we might borrow from this. 
And this is verse 8. I think we'll go back to see how he's introduced it. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labour of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Notice, it's not your love and your hope and your faith, but it's the work and the labour associated with it. Something obvious. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Well, how did Paul know that election? He had no private access to these secrets of God. Nobody said, I know your elect of God, for our gospel came up unto you in word only, but also in power. And he says in verse 6, you became followers of us and the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you became in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Archaia, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord. There's the word that means to blow a trumpet. So these Thessalonians blew a trumpet, but not their own trumpet in boasting. But they blew a trumpet in the sense that their very lives were making a witness that couldn't be misunderstood. No uncertain sound. And then in uh, Romans, the 10th chapter, Romans, the 10th chapter, verse 20, verse 18. He's there speaking about the gospel. We'll read a little bit earlier than that. Verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him of whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, that bring glad tidings of good things. But they are not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who hath believed our report. So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now comes the trumpet sound. But I say, have they not heard? Yea, verily. Their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. A trumpet sound in preaching the gospel is also another thing that we can take to ourselves. And then with regard to this emphasis upon uncertain sounding, you know how the apostle was so concerned with regard to his own speech, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 17. We'll never defeat the foe if we stoop to use his methods. Ours must be as the apostles put it, not done in a corner. It must be out in the light. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. For we are not as many. Always a sad thing to think that so early in the apostles' ministry he had to say as many. We are not as many which corrupt the word of God. And the word corrupt means to water down. To water it down. A temptation that you'll be exposed to as well as I have been. Just soft pedal that offensive bit of teaching of yours and the doors of these other chapels will be open to you. That's the sort of thing. Corrupting or soft peddling the word of God. But, he says, in contrast to that, as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God. Look at the three things he says before he speaks about his speech. But as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. And from that we go on to chapter 3, where he says in verse um, 12, Seeing then we have 
such a hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses who veiled his faith. Great plainness of speech. And then in chapter 4, verse 2, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. But having renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. No hiding. All out in the open. No covering up. And then, if you go back to Acts 20, as we've looked at it earlier, but there's another statement there that is in harmony with this, which we ought to include. In Acts 20, when Paul is giving a review of the ministry that he had fulfilled up to that time, he says, in the 20th chapter, verse 20, And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you, and have taught you publicly, and from house to house. There's an emphasis upon the thing being brought right out into the open. And again in verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. If the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for battle? Well now, just to bring a little bit to a conclusion, I want to go back, as I have time, I wasn't sure, I want to go back to the question about the fighting. And for this, I want to turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Folks are looking at the clock, but we've got a big subject to be crammed into a few minutes. Deuteronomy chapter 2. They are now starting, the children of Israel, to enter into the land of promise. But they've got to go through the adjacent countries, and you see what it says um, in verse 4. Ye are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and they shall be afraid of you. Take ye good heed unto yourselves, therefore, verse 5, meddle not with them. Meddle not with them. And you'll see presently there are others. There are others who are called the Moabites, verse 9, contend with, and neither contend with them in battle. That's again the word medal. And then you find uh, others are mentioned until at last, verse 24, Rise ye up, take your journey, pass over river Arnon. Behold, I have given unto thine hand Sion the Amorite king of Heshbon and his land. Begin to possess it and contend with him in battle. That's the very word medal. Medal with him. Now to lift out from this the thought, we are not to medal with the world in which we find ourselves. If we want to go through the land that belongs to these others, we promise to keep to the main road, we promise to walk upon our feet, as they said, we promise to pay for the water we drink. We are just passing through. We're not judging you, we're not trying to put you right, we just say, allow us to go on our pilgrim journey, for we are going home to our own inheritance. That's our attitude to the outside world. Meddle not with them. Or there's many a Christian, if he could only have read Deuteronomy, would never have been elected upon the town council and vexed his righteous soul as Lot did when he went into Sodom. He thought he was going to put Sodom right. But you know what happened to him, don't you? Meddle not with him. You're not put into this world to meddle with them. The only ones with whom you are to meddle are the equivalents to the Sion king of the Amorites, 
who were the legitimate foes. These are com comparable to, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with spiritual enemies that are right on the frontier, endeavouring to dispossess us of our inheritance. Meddle with them. Well, now, this has been rather a strange subject this evening. I haven't kept closely to near my fire. I've looked at it, and then uh, found sort of echoes in the lives and the experiences, particularly of the apostles, Peter and Jude and the Apostle Paul and his witness and warnings to the churches that are under his care. I had to decide either to say, well, we won't bother to look at chapter 4 at all, or we will make it a jumping off ground to have one more opportunity to face the fact that we've got enemies, that we do well to recognize them, and the only way to meet them is our trust in the living God to go on with the work he's given to us, to stand ready to, to hold fast the faithful word, be prepared to be misunderstood and mocked if needs be, but at long last to have the joy of knowing that the Lord is built and the work's been done. And after that, we can leave it to the Lord as to what he's going to do with it and how far he will say to us, when that day comes, well done, good and faithful servant. That's a thing that none of us can be sure about, even as the apostle said. He wasn't sure until the very end. He said, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I have kept the faith. If that can be said of you and me at the finish, what blessed and happy people we shall be. We have yet to come to another aspect of truth in the book of Nehemiah before we finish, and that, I think, will bring our studies to a conclusion.